Well, good morning, and thank you very much for inviting me. This is the second time I come here, and it's usually something when you, you, you're invited twice to the same place, you, you have to wonder whether they like you, or the first time you didn't really pass a good message, so they didn't understand, they call you back, and it's not flattering. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, um, these are my disclosures, and uh, I wanted to remind everybody that uh, the Congress you just mentioned is coming up very soon in March, to actually 28th, 30th uh, of this year, so a couple of, uh, a few weeks indeed. And this Congress is going to be very interesting because we're going to discuss a lot of things uh, related to the use and uh, study of metabolic surgery, gastrointestinal surgery for the treatment of diabetes. And we're going to approach also the mechanisms of action of these operations. And there will be a number of sessions where many of uh, the uh, colleagues here from the center, from uh, other centers, will, will uh, help, actually, really has been helpful to uh, put together a program in many sessions. And there will be one in particular, one of the sessions, where we will discuss exactly the topic of this uh, lecture, the uh, emerging role of the gastrointestinal tract in obesity and diabetes. Of course, that will be done in a much better way by people that are uh, at a much higher league than myself, so you're going to be hearing much uh, more than uh, what you see today. One of the persons who will speak at that session will be Rudy, but also uh, Mike Brown, Joe Goldstein, Ralph DeFronzo, Jerry Schulman, um, David Cummings, and many, many others will be involved. It will be a very, very uh, interesting, uh, I think, a stimulating discussion. So I want to, to start from the uh, scientific method, uh, the definition of scientific method. Back in history, the history, like when the Galileo Galilei and other scientists define how to how do you actually do science these of, they define that there is a there are two components to science one is having a good hypothesis to test and one is actually another uh, part is testing the hypothesis through experiments that are very rigorous so this has been the scientific matter of history I would uh, submit that perhaps over the last century in medicine, we've been much more focusing on one aspect of it, the experimentation and verification by rigorous methodology, so that, and, and much less on speculation and creative ideas. As a matter of fact, if you come up with an idea that doesn't fit with what everybody believes, you're often considered sort of a heretical person, and you're not taken seriously. If you try to, um, if you go back and look at the history of medicine, there are many discoveries that were made because of clinical observation, just phenomenology or anecdotic uh, um, experiences. Those were the experiences that triggered the ideas and triggered uh, research and, and, and led to discoveries. But if you try today to send a paper to a major journal, which is just because of, you, of, a, of an interesting observation of some phenomenology there, they will send you the paper back right away, say, if you don't have a molecular explanation, come back another time. And I think, of course, it's important to have verification, but if you don't start with, with some ideas, if you don't start to challenge the uh, paradigms, I think there is no science uh, at all. Uh, and so I, I would uh, submit that particularly in diabetes over the last century, we have seen a much more interest in the molecular aspects of it and less on the big picture. We know a lot of things that happen at the level of the cell, receptors, proteins, mitochondria, very small, but we don't know the, uh, why in the first place do we have diabetes. We don't have an idea of diabetes, if you really think about it. What is diabetes? It's a difficult question to answer. We usually say it's hyperglycemia, 
but that might not tell you the whole story. So I think we have lost a little bit the attitude of uh, looking at the big picture, looking, learning from from observations, and also trying to integrate uh, different um, sources of knowledge, like from epidemiology, uh, medical observation, and also, of course, laboratory uh, testing. So this is, I think, is something we should try to recuperate if we want to understand uh, diabetes and also, I guess, obesity. So how will I discuss the role of the gut today? <coughs> to take this approach. First of all, I will uh, challenge the conventional ideas about obesity and diabetes and see if those are paradigms are still uh, valuable in, view, in, in light of the uh, modern knowledge about the regulation of body weight and uh, glucose hemostasis. And then I'll use a number of arguments to support the possibility, certainly I don't have the proof, that the gut might be involved in this um, disease. So the first question is, who is obese? I think this is a fundamental question, and I don't think we have got an answer yet. In fact, if you ask this question to most other people in the, in, on, in the street, but even, unfortunately, people in the uh, medical community, they will tell you that somebody who is obese, it's somebody who is very heavy, bottom line, because it's based, basically measured by BMI, and BMI is extremely uh, sensitive to, uh, to work. So, it, it, it boils down to a problem of body weight, excess body weight, and the definition that everybody has. However, that definition would not account for a number of uh, uh, important observations that are not just anecdotal, but very consistent. There are stories, even in the major newspapers, suggesting that you could be normal weight and still fat or obese in some ways. So that doesn't go with the idea of the weight itself. And there are studies showing, in fact, that you can be very heavy. So your weight could be, by all definitions, in the range of obesity, yet you may be very healthy. And vice versa, your weight may be normal, and you may have all the clusters of cardiovascular risk that you have when you are uh, considered obese. So again, so right there, there is a first evidence that the association of obesity equals excess weight is probably not uh, real good, really a good uh, definition of obesity. So I would suggest that obesity is an ill-defined condition today because we focus too much on body weight. And I would also suggest that maybe diabetes is ill-defined too. In fact, if you consider that uh, diabetes is basically defined by hyperglycemia, we make diagnosis of diabetes only when you find hyperglycemia. Now, what, are, what is hyperglycemia? What is overweight? Uh, there are symptoms or signs, if you will. And there is no many other diseases in medicine that are defined by a single symptom. Typically, symptoms are uh, uh, things that happen in a cluster or manifestations. They may or may not, very often, some diseases are uh, characterized by the presence of a symptom that is very common. So the phenotype is primarily linked to that kind of symptomatology, but many or most diseases sometimes may lack uh, one symptom and still be there. So while it's true that overweight could be the most common symptom of obesity if you take that approach, in some patients that symptom may lack, you still may be obese. It would be too much of a stretch to say that you uh, may be hyperglycemic and not being diabetic, di diabetic but I think there are situations where this occurs. For instance, hyperglycemia occurs in the intensive care unit all the time. 
in burn uh, units, in C. hyperglycemia. But those patients are not diabetic. So could it, could it be, and don't take me as a crazy person, that hyperglycemia is not a disease. Hyperglycemia may be a compensatory mechanism that occurs when you have diabetes, when you have, in other words, inability to uh, deal with energy uh, in metabolized energy. So in other words, maybe the cell cannot uh, live uh, with the, cannot, cannot use energy properly, and there's a compensatory mechanism that increases glycemia in the blood circulation, so that pushes, that pushes more glucose into the cell. This is just a, maybe a crazy, stupid idea, but it's just to say that we don't have any uh, evidence that the disease itself is hyperglycemia as opposed to the hyperglycemia being just a uh, consequence. Uh, and so I would say that it's sex weight and our symptoms, again, not disease per se. You may think this is semantics, but I believe that it's important because if you start to define um, diseases in the wrong way, then everything is wrong. Everything that comes from that becomes wrong. You cannot interpret uh, the reality very well. You cannot even interpret well the data that comes from, uh, from the lab or from the clinical observations if you already start with the wrong paradigm. So here we go with um, obesity. Another issue that I think we have is that there is a common wisdom that body weight regulation is basically um, nothing else than energy in versus energy out. And if you go with that, obesity then is not a disease. Obesity is simply a condition of either too much energy intake or too little energy expenditure. So not surprisingly, this type of uh, approach to obesity and this kind of, kind of understanding of what body weight regulation predisposes to creation of dogmas or even stigmatization for patients. In other words, you're not going to be obese if you know how to eat and how to exercise. And if you don't, that's your fault. That's it. That, that, that's, that is exactly what happened in the society today and unfortunately in, uh, in the medical community as well. Again, because we thought that uh, primarily uh, energy, body weight regulation is a, is a consequence of how much energy comes in, when people discovered the invented gastro bypass, actually Ed Mason was the surgeon who did it. The idea was this. Uh, patients who have gastrectomies or gastro, uh, partial gastrectomies for cancer also, they usually lose a little bit of weight and sometimes they might remain underweight. Not very often, but they might. So they say, well, can we use this for uh, treating patients with obesity? And why would we do, would we do that? because uh, we would restrict the amount of food that one can eat because we reduce the stomach size, and we would reduce the absorption by bypassing the power. So by both mechanisms, we are doing nothing else than decreasing energy intake. And that per se was supposed to be um, the uh, mechanism of action. That was the idea that has been dominant for many, many years in our field. However, it doesn't work exactly that way. When uh, body weight is regulated, I'm really, kind of uh, feeling better speaking about body weight regulation in front of somebody who really knows how this works, like really, but uh, in, a, in a very simple-minded surgeon, I think it's fair to say that food intake or energy acquisition and energy expenditure are regulated by the process, whatever this is, uh, so the changes in one or another can eventually um, 
exert um, effect and, and uh, compensatory changes in the other so that body weight remains somewhat uh, constant within a uh, range that is considered uh, normal. So here again, the experiments by really uh, looking at uh, weight loss from, uh, again, non-surgical uh, means. Uh, when you lose weight, energy expenditure decreases and vice versa when you increase your weight. So in other words, this mechanism maintains body weight constant. And this is true for both obese and non-obese patients. Another consequence of losing weight is the increase in uh, uh, hunger sensations and, and food intake. Uh, and this is in fact what happens when you try to lose weight on a moon search. So there's a very powerful system that resists changes in terms of body weight. When we do gastro bypass, however, uh, it's not just a restriction, uh, a matter of restriction and malabsorption, as we usually used to think, but it's more, there's something more complex that happens. And in fact, patients, actually rats in this case, who have uh, had worldwide gastro bypass, they lose weight, and if you look at the, di at the diagram I showed before, you would expect that they would decrease energy expenditure as a compensatory mechanism. But this doesn't happen. In, at least in rats, not in humans yet, energy expenditure is increased in the face of uh, weight loss. It doesn't fit with what we knew uh, before, what we thought before. Another thing that happens is uh, patients come and they're very, very scared about having gastric bypass because they think they, they're going to have a very small stomach and they can't eat very much. In reality, they don't care about what they eat. After surgery, they're happy. They say, I eat little uh, portions, but I'm happy with them. And it's not only that. If you actually look at what they eat before and after surgery, it really makes it, it's, you would be struck by seeing that the, the food choices also are changed. There's this kind of syndrome, uh, some colleagues describe as, I don't enjoy burgers anymore, uh, syndrome, after gastroparesis. So it's like they naturally decide to eat uh, healthier, healthier foods after the operation, and nobody really knows why. If you try to do gastric bypass in mice or rats as well, and you put them in front of um, food that could be high fat or low fat and or um, both flavored, they don't know. Nobody tells mice or rats what to do. But if you do gastric bypass, they would consistently reduce the consumption of high fat food and choose the low fat. And here, there's no psychological intervention or behavioral modification. It's just as consequence of an operation on the GI tract. So, here's the first message. Intake of food and energy expenditure may be modulated by changes in gastrointestinal anatomy because what we do with gastro, with gastro bypass is nothing else than operating on GI tract. We're not operating on the brain. We're not operating on the adipocytes. We're not operating on the liver. We're operating on the GI tract. So that is, uh, is something to keep in mind. So it might be that what gastro bypass or other operations are doing uh, is some sort of influence on the uh, mechanism that regulate uh, body weight and particularly both energy intake and energy expenditure. So that might explain why, uh, unlike non-surgical uh, attempts to lose weight, you are capable of losing weight because those compensatory mechanisms that usually resist body change, body weight changes, are, <coughs> all, are over um, ridden by whatever the gastric bypass is doing in, body, in the mechanism of body weight regulation. Another um, um, again, a uh, message uh, I'd like to pass is um, the idea that maybe the uh, com conventional wisdom of the relationship between body weight and diabetes 
might be uh, inaccurate in some ways. And I know that when I say these things, a lot of scientists get very angry at me. There's one in particular that attacks me every time and says, Francesco, you should not question that obesity causes diabetes. That's a given fact. Just stop with, stop discussing. And I would refuse to accept that because I think there is still something that needs to be um, addressed there. And there is not a cause-effect relationship, uh, at least not really demonstrated. So how important is body weight for diabetes? There's no question that if you look at the uh, epidemic of obesity and the epidemic of diabetes in the United States, you will see that uh, there is a rise in obesity over time uh, and a rise in diabetes over time, and particularly that the states of the U.S. that have more obesity happens to, happen to be the ones who have more diabetes. So with this diagram, the idea has become very solid that maybe obesity is what is driving the diabetes epidemic. Now, do you think that this per se is an evidence of cause and effect. I would say not necessary. And also you can go in other countries where there is no such a match between the increase you know, in body weight and the uh, epidemic of diabetes. There are countries that are uh, experienced diabetes epidemics without experiencing necessarily the same epidemic of overweight. We say that they develop diabetes at lower BMI. What does that mean? I don't know. But at the very least, is not the way that uh, is driving it. And again, the, the study I just mentioned before showing that uh, if there was a cause relationship between a, being heavy and being diabetic, all patients with diabetes should be heavy. And nobody who is not heavy should have diabetes. But that, that, that is not uh, what we see indeed. Another uh, conventional uh, idea, very, very common, very strong, is that Weight loss improves diabetes. So if you look at the look ahead study, uh, people say, well, that's a demonstration that you can prevent or treat diabetes by weight loss. I would contend that that is not really accurate either. Because in fact, when you say weight loss improves diabetes, you're making a conceptual uh, potential mistake. In fact, weight loss is not an intervention. Weight loss is the consequence of an intervention. So you should ask, what was the intervention that caused weight loss in the first place? Could it be the same intervention that caused weight loss that through similar or different mechanisms have caused both diabetes to improve and weight uh, to uh, be reduced? So the idea is that you have an intervention, whether it's diet, exercise, or surgery, that can cause an endocrine or metabolic effect mechanisms, if you will, and those results in weight loss. So if this is the case, it might be entirely possible that you have diabetes control through uh, the same or at least a part of those mechanisms and not necessary as a consequence of weight loss. But the idea that is very strong is that the reason why diet and exercise and surgery improve diabetes through weight loss is because when you lose weight, you decrease your uh, fat mass. And so diabetes would improve because there is a connection between alterations of adipocyte functions and diabetes. However, if that were true, you would expect that by mechanically removing fat from the uh, body, you should improve diabetes significantly. And everybody was being trying to do that by liposuction, or even more sophisticated uh, approaches, re removing the visceral fat by doing omentectomy, uh, for instance. None of those studies have ever shown that you can induce 
uh, substantial improvement of the remission of diabetes as much as you can do instead with a gastric bypass operation, for instance. So it might not be that it's the mass of the adipocytes or the mass of the fat we have, uh, or even the disposition, it's the function of that fat that might be related with diabetes. Now, why this fat is dysfunctional uh, is the right question, in my opinion, to ask. And many scientists that start from the, that are supporter of the lipocentric hypothesis of diabetes pathophysiology, they start by saying the adipocyte causes, produces a number of uh, factors that might cause diabetes. But why some people don't do that and others do? The question is there must be a big bang in everything. And I think the adipocyte is not placed in a position to really be uh, the big bang. Or, and there might be something happening before. Whether this is coming from, nobody knows. So here is a, an idea that I think might be worth considering, is that whatever intervention we are doing, exercise, again, diet and surgery, we should consider that those interventions may have commonly, common or not necessarily common pathways where they improve a change metabolism. And as a result, you're gonna see a, an improvement of the symptoms of disease. So this might be also true uh, for the reverse. Maybe the cause of diabetes and obesity is, a per, is some sort of alteration of glucose homeostasis and energy homeostasis that may result in the development of hyperglycemia and the development of overweight. And so you'll see very often the two things going together, which on the, if you take the large picture in the United States, uh, might justify why you have this twin epidemic of diabetes and obesity, but not necessarily together. Some patients, for genetic reasons, might develop one symptom and not the other. And that would justify why many patients don't have diabetes, they're still obese and vice versa. So let's try to see why the, I believe that the GI tract should be put in the paradigm of the pathophysiology of diabetes and obesity. First of all, the logic argument. Uh, why logic? Uh, when you look about type, the paradigm of, uh, look at the paradigm of type 2 diabetes, there is now not an organ that you can uh, pinpoint to say this is where diabetes sits. Usually we say that to have diabetes, in order to have diabetes, you have to have a number of alterations. Why in the liver, the liver doesn't work well, the adipocyte doesn't work well, the muscle doesn't work well, it's not sensitive to insulin, and the pancreas doesn't make it insulin. So it's a combination of defects that causes the disease. And without this, this component, you don't have diabetes. Without other components, you don't have that type 2 diabetes. So, that's fine. But how many chances there are, from a mathematical standpoint, that you can have a cluster of so many different defects, and this cluster happens so often to justify an epidemic uh, of, the, of diabetes? We have not changed our genes in less than a generation. We have not changed our genes from 1990 to today. 1990s when the epidemic of diabetes and obesity started in this country. So something is happening in the environment that is causing an epidemic. Now, it's not changing our genes, but it's probably changing the way these organs work. So what we should try to come up with is a, a unifying hypothesis that might justify why all these organs, why a, you have a systemic disease that is clearly responsive to environmental changes. Which of these organs are more in contact with the environment? 
which of these organs can more readily sense the changes in the environment and provide information to the others in order to cause a, a, a epidemic disease. I would suggest that, of course, the gut is very well placed uh, to do that. It's like a, um, what we call the maestro uh, in, a, in an orchestra. You can actually send, sense what's going around and tell people what to do. Um, so epidemiology is important. When I was in medical school, they were telling me that in the past, the, reason, the way to approach uh, the understanding of diseases was through many things. One was epidemiology. The epidemic dif uh, profile of a disease is important. So if you have an epidemic disorder, you really have to be careful of thinking that it's so complex uh, in terms of uh, uh, defects to, to be explained. So there must be, some, there must be a cause there that justifies everything. And again, as I say, because the, bi the bowel is, is um, central in the regulation of energy and glucose in the stars, it's really very well placed. So potentially, it is one of the players that might be uh, doing much uh, to justify this epidemic. The physiologic arguments. There is no question that uh, the, the, the gut, the stomach, they are not just there to take nutrients and put them into the circulation. If you have a meal, Whatever meals you have, and there are differences in the type of meals and the responses you're going to have, there's a response in terms of hormonal secretion. So nutrients go around the bowel, and then you see a number of hormones going up and another good number going down. It's a very sophisticated system, but there's no question that this is an endocrine organ, and it's probably the most important of all the endocrine organs we have. If you judge by the number of hormones, and also if you judge by the ability to influence other organs in the body. I would say that there are not many other organs like as powerful and as important like this uh, in the regulation of body weight and the regulation of uh, uh, glucose homeostasis. I think that's undisputed. So, in fact, when you look at the effect of uh, infusion of glucose intravenous versus a lot of glucose uh, in the um, um, gastrointestinal tract. Everybody knows that the, uh, there is an incretin effect. There is a different, uh, different response of insulin to the same type of uh, isoglycemic, if you will, um, uh, load. So it means that something else in the bowel is important in the regulation of insulin response to uh, stimuli and uh, also in the regulation of glucose uh, levels. These are the experiments that show that no matter how much glucose you give, <coughs> glycemic, glycemic response remains stable or consistent even for higher levels of um, glucose stimuli when those are given by uh, orally by, uh, through the gastrointestinal tract. And why this is happening? You have more sugars, but it doesn't really reflect into a higher circu uh, circulating level of sugars. That is because, of course, there's more insulin for higher concentration of stimulus. There's more insulin produced when you have the stimulus given through the, through the gut, which is due to the f famous incretin effect. The incretin effect is primarily, for today at least, uh, justified by two hormones, GLP-1 and GIP, that are produced by endocrine cells in the bowel. These endocrine cells are, have the ability to sense the um, nutrients in the lumen of the gut uh, they could respond to either glucose or depending on uh, species of animals or humans or fat um, or maybe other uh, stimulants, uh, stimuli 
and then uh, through a complex process, they could basically uh, produce hormones like GLP-1 that can get into the bloodstream or can also influence um, uh, neuroreceptors uh, and, and have a consequent uh, neuroendocrine effect. So their action very powerful. I don't have to remind the specialists of what are the actions of GLP-1 and GLP, but just to say that they are very, very important in the physiologic regulation of um, uh, glucose homeostasis. And there's, uh, I think this is also undisputed. So physiologically, the gut, through incretins and through many other hormones, is important in the regulation of glucose uh, levels and in uh, um, and insulin. Particularly, look at the uh, uh, plasma level of GLP-1 chip in insulin normal subjects. You have a sort of a, a consistent pattern between the increase of these hormones, the increase in insulin and regulation of sugars. Um, there, is also, there is also an important um, function in reducing glucagon um, excursions, by, uh, particularly by GLP-1. Uh, so those are powerful uh, mechanisms. Again, as I said before, through the hormones or just through direct uh, stimulation due to changes in motility or distensions of pressure, intramural pressure in the gut. There's also a number of uh, signals that can influence glucose homeostasis through the nerves. And there's a study showing also how this beautifully can regulate uh, insulin sensitivity in the liver. Uh, nutrients uh, are sensitive, particularly fat, in the duodenum, according to the study. Uh, and um, uh, this um, sense sensors are transmitting the information to the brainstem and down back to the river, modulating insulin sensitivity at that point. So there is a clear uh, influence of nutrients uh, on uh, glucose homeostasis, and this is mediated by both hormones and neural uh, signals. So of course, there is also uh, bile, and I will not get into that for uh, sake of time, but bile acids also play a role, and bile acids also are produced and released into the gut. Same is for obesity. The gut is uh, an important player in the regulation of body weight, but also in the regulation, more importantly, of appetite and satiety. And the the short-term signals that regulate appetite and satiety and body weight are coming from, uh, from, from the gut and integrate what other signals are coming from other organs like the adipocyte. And they all uh, relay, rely in the, um, in the brain. So it is a major player in the regulation of body weight. So the physiology... Is, uh, the, the gut is important in the physiology of uh, body weight regulation and, and glucose homeostasis. Now the question is, could it be possible that a very sophisticated organ uh, system like the, the one I've just described never, got, never um, gets wrong? It would be the only exception to the rule that every single organ in the body, endocrine organ in the body, can get sick. The thyroid gets sick, the adrenals get sick, the uh, hypothesis gets sick, why the gut will never get sick. And in fact, the gut is the one that is more prone to get sick because it's the one, unlike the other endocrine organs, that is constantly, daily, uh, under pressure by environmental changes and, and, and many other things, and potential <coughs> toxic agents. So the fact that the gut may become sick is a real possibility. And if the gut becomes sick, I'm sorry if I'm using a very um, you know, a basic word, you would expect changes in uh, many functions of other organs that are in communication with the gut. In other words, a dysfunction of the gut can cause a systemic disease just because of its physiologic role uh, in the body. Do we have any evidence that there are dysfunctional gut mechanisms in obesity and diabetes? 
Well, I think there is certainly evidence enough to say that there is an association between obesity and certain type of uh, gut dysfunction. We know, for instance, that patients who are obese usually don't rise their PYY levels appropriately after a meal. Is this a cause or an effect of being obese? We don't know, but certainly that is something that has been measured by uh, several researchers. There's also some hints that ghrelin regulation is altered in patients with obesity. And, uh, and um, in diabetes, we certainly know that there are alterations of gastrointestinal motility. Gastroparesis has always been considered a cause, uh, sorry, an effect of being diabetic, diabetic but will be, might, be also be, might, be also be, uh, might be also regarded as a, as a potential um, sign of something going wrong in the gastrointestinal physiology. There's also evidence that the incretin effect is altered in diabetic patients. And you can see that um, both insulin and plasma and sibeptide here are not uh, as, uh, don't rise as much in patients with diabetes um, uh, as they do when you do the same type of st stimulus test in normal individuals. So uh, there's a number of studies that have shown that this is happening because the incretin effect is impaired. GLP-1 secretion itself is impaired. It doesn't rise as much as it should. Uh, the beta cell sensitivity to GLP-1 <coughs> is slightly decreased, and particularly it's decreased in response to the, uh, the, the, the sensitivity to GIP. It could be, the GLP-1 uh, sensitivity could be normalized if you give sophrophysiologic levels of GLP-1 uh, using exogenous GLP-1. But this doesn't happen uh, with GIP. That is, that is a system that doesn't work anymore. There's no way to fix at least uh, so far. So certainly incretins don't, don't work as they should. There, is also, there are also another other, um, type of um, data that suggests the potential involvement of gastrointestinal dysfunctions in obesity and diabetes. We know that the gut is a uh, site where there is a lot of uh, bacteria and, uh, and various species of bacteria. There's, there's some early evidence, I would say probably not conclusive, that some changes in the bacteria in the gut may contribute to insulin resistance and, and, uh, and diabetes. The criteria that I call ex adjuvantibus, when I was in my medical school in Rome, of course, they, they like to use Latin words. And ex adjuvantibus was a, a um, definition of um, how in the history of medicine we have learned about diseases. Typically, we learn about diseases by the way they were treated. They were treated empirically. Uh, very often, there was no knowledge about what the disease is, but you try to treat it, it works, and then you start to uh, think about why does it work, and you understand the disease. That's the criteria is ex adivantibus. There is no question that um, um, today we have evidence that changes in actual manipulation of gut physiology, like surgery, can induce substantial improvement, actually remission of uh, hyperglycemia, something I almost unheard of with any other form of treatment <coughs> before. Um, this is a very um, consistent uh, result of any type of manipulation you do, not just the bariatric operations we do today, but even the ones we used to do for peptic ulcer gastric cancer resulted in the past in the improvement of diabetes. We have seen that this happens even in, in, in rats that have no obesity, but they are just um, uh, uh, sorry, insulin resistant and type 2 diabetic. And other, other colleagues have done experiments with perfeeding um, uh, mechanisms so to show that the effect on diabetes is not necessarily dependent on weight loss. There's also other um, 
evidence from human studies, La Ferrer here at Columbia has shown that uh, when you take two groups of patients who have equivalent weight loss, one group from diet and one from uh, uh, gastric bypass, there is a difference in the way um, glucose tolerance is improved, which means gastric bypass is more effective. Other studies showing that for equivalent weight loss by two different procedures, <coughs> gastric bypass operation results in more um, in higher rates of diabetes remission. So here the weight loss is the same as constant, but diabetes control is different, just simply because it's different the way we have manipulated the test. So there's another way of testing a weight-independent mechanism that to me is very interesting, which is if you have a gastric bypass, uh, a patient with gastric bypass, there's a stomach that is excluded, so is also the duodenum. But if you were able to put a tube into the remnant stomach, then you can restore duodenal passage of nutrients, and at that point you have a perfect experimental model to test the difference of, uh, in glucose tolerance when the nutrients go one way or another. And believe it or not, this experiment has been done. It's been done by a group of um, researchers in uh, uh, Denmark, I think the group of James Holtz, when they took this patient who went back to surgery for another issue postoperatively, so they had the opportunity to put a tube, and what they found was that when you, you, you feed the patients uh, from uh, uh, the mouth after a gastric bypass, you have a duodenal exclusion, so food doesn't go through the duodenum, and then you have a better glucose tolerance. The same subject, next day, is given food through the tube in the stomach, so the, <coughs> the nutrients go back to the duodenum, and here is the glucose excretion is much higher. So in other words, diabetes is still there. It's just a way for us to uh, elicit that uh, alteration uh, in terms of response. And, and the same happens with insulin. There's more insulin produced when food goes directly into the lower bowel as opposed to uh, through the natural route. Uh, and this is, um, uh, this is true also for GLP-1. You can see that uh, in the normal, in the gastric bypass anatomy, this is the response of GLP-1. When you, the same subject receives um, glucose again through its duodenum, that uh, GLP-1 response is blunted again. We also did something in uh, our lab in uh, at Cornell uh, with our fellows. We have looked at a, um, uh, an operation called duodenal jejunal bypass, which is similar to gastric bypass, and we looked at, uh, um, we tried to make a very precise study design in a, in a way that we have control groups, sham groups, that are per-fed or are libitum-fed, and we uh, have been able uh, to, we've been successful in creating two groups, the champer fed and the gastric bypass animals, uh, where weight gain and uh, food intake, of course, were very similar. So there is no difference in terms of weight and food intake, yet when you look at insulin um, uh, in the model of the super rats, there is a, a typical decline over time of insulin levels, but this doesn't happen if you perform this operation. In other words, the operation is able to, to freeze the insulin levels where they were at the time of the operation. So there's another mechanism of insulin secretion that cannot be justified by weight loss, both because of the study design, but also because insulin secretion is not necessarily responding to weight loss. An important thing is that surgery in humans not only reduce glycemia, but reduce mortality from diabetes. And this is very important because not every diabetes treatment reduces mortality. So today, surgery is becoming more um, accepted, if you will, a little bit uh, as a potential treatment. There are many studies going on to try to understand if we can use it also for patients who are not obese. One of them is going on at our center at Cornell. We're operating on patients with BMI 28 to 34. So if it happens to you to see patients in this range, 
we are doing a randomized trial comparing gastric bypass versus uh, optimal medical therapy and lifestyle modification to see whether surgery may uh, be an option. We are also using the same protocol in a work consortium where we will uh, uh, basically share the protocol and many other centers will run an independent uh, randomized trial uh, to try to get a big population and see whether uh, in addition to glycemia we can confirm that surgery improves uh, cardiovascular risk, reduce cardiovascular risk, and mortality from diabetes. Very briefly, the last two uh, points, one of, uh, to me, very intriguing, is the what I call the bypass paradox. And this is, may support the role of the gut in diabetes. In fact, when you do a bypass uh, and of, the, of the proximal gut in patients with diabetes, you see this fantastic improvement. Uh, but if you do the same operation in uh, uh, patients who don't have diabetes, you actually don't see the improvement. If anything, you see a worsening of glucose tolerance. This is true in rats. We did an operation, a bypass operation, in Western rats, and what we found was that glycemic excursions were higher than uh, in, the sh in the before surgery in the sham group as well. And this, again, Western rats are non-diabetic. But humans as well uh, act the same way. If you have a gastric bypass, this, these are data from Allison Goldfine uh, in Boston, if you have a patient with gastric bypass who doesn't have diabetes, the typical curve post-operative of glucose tolerance is a very high peak, ranging almost in the uh, hyperglycemia that causes glycosuria, followed by a low um, hypoglycemia late in the, um, in the test. So clearly this is not a physiologic glucose tolerance. And we have also been looking at uh, what happens when you do operations that are similar? This is gastric bypass. These are gastrectomies done for peptic ulcers or gastric cancer. There's plenty of data in the literature showing that all these operations that are similar to gastric bypass have been studied for many, many years. When you do this exclusion of duodenum in non-diabetic patients, you inevitably get impaired glucose tolerance. It's not really diabetes, but it's not a physiologic glucose tolerance. So you would have to ask why an operation that is not causing an improvement of physiology but actually a deterioration becomes the most powerful anti-diabetic uh, treatment when you apply it to diabetic uh, patients. So my suggestion is that maybe the reason is, why, is that the um, gastric bypass surgery is repairing uh, some sort of broken mechanisms there. So that would justify why diabetic patients have an advantage, and even though you're using an operation that is not a physiologic uh, one, it's not strengthening physiology. So in that case, you can go on and be, um, again, crazy, if you will, and suggest that maybe diabetes is a disease of the bowel, or at least the bowel contributes to, to, to the disease. And finally, to explain this from a me molecular mechanism, I started from the big observation, and here again, myself, I'm trying to, be, to, to, to serve the molecular explanation. Why? Uh, could this uh, role of the bowel make sense? Again, I said before that there's an equating effect that just that explains why for increasing increased levels of um, sorry amount of glucose stimulation, we don't see an increase in the level of glucose in the circulation. And we say that this is explained by the higher concentration of insulin for higher concentrations of glucose. Fine. But if you have so much insulin, wouldn't you expect hypoglycemia? But in reality, this never occurs physiologically. If it did, the majority of us would die every time we take a pizza or every time we go to dinner. It doesn't happen. 
So there must be something that compensates this huge increase in insulin secretion and ensure that you don't have the drawback of having too much insulin. So in my view, there should be a mechanism of control for insulin that I originally called anti-impretin. Why? Because physiologically, we know that impretins are producing response to your meal, and they do uh, increase insulin secretion, they do increase insulin action, there's uh, some data there, but certainly they also promote beta cell growth. All these actions together would eventually result in um, acute or chronic hypoglycemia if you eat, uh, every time you eat. Uh, so this does not happen. This is a lethal condition, and the body cannot allow that to happen. So it might be that there is a, uh, um, also, if we had a continuous stimulus on beta cell growth that is not compensated, how many insulinomas would you see? And insulinomas are not very common. So there must be a system that probably compensates for that. So the idea is that the anti the, 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 the meal stimulants uh, would uh, increase secretion of incretins, but also at the same time trigger somehow the production of uh, compensatory factors, which uh, you can call anti-incretins or whatever you want. I don't know if this might be a hormone, uh, maybe a neural signal or whatever. I'm just saying it's a system that balances the act the other system, and so the. Um, if you accept that, you would say that this system should compensate the secretion of insulin, compensate in a negative way the action of insulin, and compensate in a negative way the effect on beta cell proliferation. So this system would reduce beta cell proliferation or kill beta cell, if you will, would reduce insulin secretion or would reduce insulin action or insulin resistance, if you will. So maybe diabetes could be just an imbalance between two physiologic responses to, to uh, uh, food intake. And in some patients who tend to have diabetes or that uh, are may be exposed to a particular type of nutrients or chemical component of diet, over and over again this system eventually overcome incretins and causing hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistant beta cell depletion. In other words, uh, type 2 diabetes. That would explain why Physiologically, if you don't have diabetes here, you don't have too much anti-incretin. You do a gastric bypass, you, do, you, you cause a deterioration of glucose tolerance. But in a patient that has an impairment, that bypass in some ways may restore a better balance between the two systems, resulting in diabetes control. On the other hand, uh, if you don't have enough anti-incretins, you would expect exactly what, I, what the hypothesis would predict, that you have hypoglycemia after a meal hypoglycemia with hyperinsulinemia. And this is exactly what happens in some cases, uh, of, actually in all cases, of patients who have gastric bypass. You have, more commonly, asymptomatic late hypoglycemia and hyperinsulinemia. But some patients actually have very symptomatic cases of those. So it may justify also this hypothesis, the occurrence of dumping syndrome. There's some uh, controversial aspect of mesideoblastosis after operations that bypass the proximal gut. And finally, I would conclude with this uh, idea here. So if you assume that the gut is involved in obesity and diabetes, you might reconcile a number of uh, observations. First of all, it goes with the fact that um, overeating it increases the risk of developing both type of diseases. But it goes with the fact that if there is a dysfunctional mechanism there in the bowel, some triggered by nutrients, whatever um, restriction of nutrient passage uh, 
through the bowel, you try to implement will result in improvement of both obesity and diabetes. If you recall the first the experiments of Dr. Allen in actually not experiments, the treatment of Dr. Allen in uh, New York in the beginning of the 20th century, he was uh, trying to treat or cure patients with diabetes by starving them uh, as much as he could. And in fact, that was the only treatment before bariatric surgery that showed to be able to uh, induce diabetes remission. Now, it might be that gastric bypass is doing nothing else than starving a piece of the bowel. Because you're not starving the whole body, you can survive, whereas the patients of Dr. Allen did not survive very long under starvation, of course. But they did uh, improve their diabetes. So I guess I would conclude by saying, uh, forgive a surgeon's simple mind uh, in my um, ideas that uh, maybe we should go back to make a step uh, back and look at the big pictures rather than just only focusing on molecular uh, explanation. I'm sure that many real scientists will probably find this a little bit uh, naive or simple, but I do believe that in some ways, looking at the big pictures, having ideas that challenge paradigms is still science itself. So I think we should recuperate that type of attitude and look at this uh, in a different way, look at obesity and diabetes in a different way. As a matter of fact, the paradigms we've been using have not been able to uh, lead us to the cure not to find the cause of diabetes. So there might be, right there, there might be enough to say that it's time to reconsider those paradigms and come up with new ideas. So with that, I will only finish to say, focusing on an organ in diabetes and obesity may have an uh, importance. When they focused on uh, the role of the pancreas, they found, uh, they discovered insulin. I think if we focus on the role of the gut, we might not necessarily find the cause of diabetes. But I'm very confident that we'll understand more what's going on. And um, of course, uh, this lecture is part of a, uh, a reflection, but many of the, much of these reflections are, are coming from studies that we have done in the lab with my colleagues uh, when I was in France and also uh, today here in New York. Thank you very much. today we can't do without it, but um, even if I'm a surgeon, much of my research is actually uh, challenging the idea of uh, intervening by surgery, because if really you have a dysfunctional mechanism there that is triggered by nutrients, uh, contents, you can take, theoretically go there and do exactly what surgery does by modulating what your, you know, the gut response, you can do this by using endoluminal devices. You could do that uh, by using, of course, pharmaceutical approaches when we find out what's going wrong, but you can also do that by um, even more physiological approaches, just trying to understand what is the component of our modern diet that is triggering this, this dysfunction. So you can probably remove those things from the diet and be as less invasive as, uh, least invasive as you can, much, much more less than, uh, when it's, than a surgical operation. The endoluminal devices you talk about, how, can you talk more about that? And have those studies been supporting everything so far? Yeah, the endoluminal uh, device is, a, is, a, is an instrument, it's a, it's a device that has been developed to uh, basically cover the mucosa of the intestine of the duodenum uh, from the inside. So basically the device 
allows the nutrients to travel through the bowel but never touch the mucosa of, of the proximal intestine. This has been studied in, in rats. I was the one who did the, the study in diabetes, but other groups like Lee Kaplan in, uh, in Boston have studied this also in uh, obese rats. And we got consistent data from between the two labs in terms of um, um, both body weight loss and uh, improvement of diabetes by just this mechanism. Now, this, the device is um, approved for uh, commerci commercial use in Europe. And in fact, in Europe, it's being uh, used in a multi-center uh, study, um, primarily in the Netherlands. And the early data will be presented at the Congress in New York. I, I have heard already in another meeting that uh, there is a um, decent weight loss, like um, 12% of uh, actual body weight loss in obese patients, which is remarkable. There's no other drug that does that. And usually there is a 1% to 2% uh, decrease in A1C levels in patients with diabetes that, again, is more than any drug is uh, usually able to do. So that subset of patients that you I think a mystery, although there are some groups that are looking at that very carefully. I think Alison Goldfin in, um, um, uh, in Boston is looking at this really um, uh, carefully from a, from a mechanistic point of view. I think other groups in, uh, at the Mayo Clinic have been studying this, but I, I don't think there is a, a real explanation for why this is happening. My fear is that we're focusing on gastro bypass, and um, a lot of people have started to explain this phenomenon as a discrepancy between insulin resistance uh, and hyperinsulinemia. In a obese patient where you have hyperinsulinemia, because they are insulin resistant, there is a compensation of the two factors. But when you deteriorate, that when you improve insulin sensitivity by an operation, the pancreas is still producing too much insulin, and that creates a discrepancy. I don't think that that explains how things are doing are going, especially because it's not a matter of fasting hyperinsulinemia. It's a, mass, a matter of postprandial hyperinsulinemia. In fact, fasting insulin is reduced by gastric bypass. So I do believe that that anti-incretin theory might explain, uh, at least contribute to explain what's happening. And if you look at the data from gastrectomies in the past, we, we usually, especially surgeons, we tend to forget history. If you just go in PubMed, it's very easy. And you just type hypoglycemia gastrectomy. You, you, you will not finish uh, to, to read the the number of papers that are not even in a year that have been published on hypoglycemia after gastrectomy has been there for so many, many years. So it's a very known phenomenon, and, and nobody really ever explained why. Uh, I, um, uh, what about uh, the anti-incretin factors? Could they also encompass what we consider to be the counter-regulatory hormones of glucagon? It could. Um, I mean, uh, certainly glucagon might be uh, uh, seen as a, as a, um, a you know, a, an old hormone that does exactly the opposite that enzyme does. It could be implicated. What regulates glucagon, however, is not clear. It might be. It's, it, it seems to be true that GLP-1 can modulate uh, glucagon, glucagon levels uh, in a, in a way that is positive. But again, you would expect that uh, as any other system in the body, almost any, any hormone, there are mechanisms that uh, push up or others that push down the, the hormones. If you 
don't assume that there is a counter-regulatory mechanism, it would be an exception to the rule of feedback that we have in any system of the body. Francisco thanks to us very stimulating. Um, one of the areas that's of great interest in diabetes and obesity now, which getting a lot of attention, is the question of intrauterine and early developmental effects on whatever the system is that we're talking about. A lot of focus has been in the central nervous system to find whatever these mechanisms might be. To the extent that this is a correct hypothesis, that is the gastrointestinal tract may be of higher primacy than had been suspected or um, studied, what, by what mechanism would you imagine that you could have an effect on these gastrointestinal systems that would be read out clinically or experimentally as the kinds of effects that people are seeing, or at least think they're seeing, in terms of intrauterine and early developmental influences on susceptibility or risk of obesity? I would think the amniotic fluid would be an immediate um, candidate to transfer. Right, but I'm asking, what do you think would happen to the GI tract as a result of those kind of exposures that would give the susceptibilities that people think they're seeing? I, I, again, I, of course, I'm biased towards one hypothesis that I'm making, the anti-incretin. If that is, a, the anti-incretin is not a, uh, just by itself as a theory, it, it is a physiologic uh, response that we got to uh, whatever stimuli it is. The idea is that uh, under certain type of uh, stimuli from the environment, they, the, the balance may be shifted towards too much of anti-incretin as opposed to incretin. So the balance is, is altered. It might be that in the early developmental phases, uh, you might be exposed to environments, in, in, including in triuterus, in, in, in that uh, may uh, cause an excess or maybe an, an increased uh, pro, uh, cellularity of those cells that actually produce this factor. So when, uh, when the babies go into their uh, you know, life, they, they are already predisposed to respond uh, to the toxic actions from the, from the environment in a way that, in fact, promotes diabetes. But uh, it's just speculation. I don't even know if it makes sense. Francisco, uh, another question. Um, has anyone tried a selective ergotomy of the upper duodenum? It's the same area that's bypassed in, in gastric bypass No, and um, not to my knowledge at least. Uh, they've been, um, I think it's a very compli uh, complicated experiment to do. Um, there have been attempts to remove the duodenum to see if it makes uh, any sense, uh, but it, it's also difficult to do it technically because the duodenum is really uh, attached to the pancreas, which in, in some ways also uh, would trigger the question why duodenum and pancreas are so intimately um, uh, attached and why uh, embryologically they actually come from the same, uh, the same place. There's certainly a lot of communication, and we know, of course, already G GIP goes from duodenum right to the pancreas, but um, I think <coughs> the intimacy between the pancreas and the, um, uh, the intestine is such that you, you, you know, it predisposes to, uh, to the connection and uh, involvement in body regulation. I think it would be nice to have an experiment where you can derivate uh, these things, but I guess it's very complex from a technical standpoint. No, we don't have that knowledge that um, colectomies, for instance, improve diabetes, uh, colectomy or distal ileal um, uh, resection. 
But we have knowledge that other operations, like uh, uh, even those that don't bypass the duodenum, uh, they can improve diabetes. Like jejunal iliac bypass, there's no duodenum bypass, but there's still improvement of diabetes. There's a, there's a new modern operation called sleep gastrectomy. has no duodenal bypass, but it does improve diabetes somewhat. My sensation is that because of those multiple mechanisms that the gut um, uh, activates in response to nutrients, there are many ways that you can improve the, of diabetes through a manipulation of the anatomy. And not necessarily those are all the same. In fact, sleep gastrectomy, when you perform it in a normal individual, or does not cause the deterioration of glucose tolerance that it causes, that gastro bypass does. It, it, it's a consistent effect. It's sleep gastrectomy and other operations improve insulin sensitivity, even in those who are non-obese or non-diabetic. Non they have a slight insulin glucose intolerance. But that's not true if you do gastro bypass. So it, it must be a different story. Yes. Um, you know, I think maybe we'll stick because we're running a little over. Maybe if people have questions, we can.